Join me in one, one more prayer before we hear from God's word. Our Father, we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And we know that your word never returns void, but always accomplishes the purpose for which it goes forth. Father, would you accompany your word, uh, fill us with the strength that you provide and cause your spirit to make it received with conviction and with power and that your church would not be hearers only, but doers also. I keep me from error. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Freedom has been a theme throughout our book of Galatians. And as I thought about it, freedom for me came in about fifth grade. I had somehow been convinced that show choir was a good thing. (laughs) Deceived, I'm convinced now, I walked up and signed up for show choir, approached my first class or lesson or practice, only to discover I was now a slave. They had me dance and sing, and we traveled around from school to school, performing for them as what they called the Feichens Fireballs. Not my fifth grade title that I wanted to be known for. All I wanted to do, every bone in my body wanted to quit. My parents, as faithful as they were, would not let you quit something you committed to. I would fulfill what it was I committed to. And so I waited with eager anticipation for the day freedom would come. And I remember on that last performance for 10-year-old Jaron, Independence Day. (laughs) Freedom. That's a, a light and humorous taste of freedom that pales in comparison to the freedom that we've been considering in, our, in this letter to the Galatians, this freedom that the Galatian churches had experienced when they first believed the gospel that Paul preached to them. Only for these Galatians, what we find is they're being tempted to turn back to return, as Paul says, to their former way of slavery. And Paul writes this letter in response. So if you would, let's turn to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, where we'll see a part of Paul's response to them. It can be found on page 1815 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Let's read. It is for freedom... That Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we 
eagerly await through the spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Paul's plea for these Christians is that they would stand firm in freedom. That they would await righteousness, that is by faith. And that they would finish the race. A plea for them and one that stands true for every Christian in this room. And what will serve as our three points this morning. Stand firm in freedom. Await righteousness by faith. And finish the race. So let's begin in that first verse. Point number one. Stand firm in freedom. And Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And there is so much in just that one verse that we could, we could spend all day on to love. And yet, and even it is a summary of Paul's main plea really throughout this entire letter. But what I want us to camp out on is right there on the, at the beginning. If you are a Christian, if you have been set free, do you know the purpose? It was for freedom, Paul says. In other words, that you would now live a life in light of the fact that you were set free. To live in light of your freedom. But then to truly understand what this freedom is, we need to both know what we were freed from, and how it was we were set free. What we were freed from, Paul is clear that freedom does not mean a freedom to think or do whatever we want, a freedom to believe or live however we want. What he does say, what he makes clear, is that by freedom, he means freedom from the yoke of the law. Freedom from what he calls slavery. This constant striving and endless ceasing to be righteous on your own strength or merit. Without ever possessing the ability to do so. That's what he wants you to see you are set free from. So if you could picture like a hamster on a wheel. Right? If you've ever had one. Put a hamster on a wheel and tell it to get to its freedom. And the hamster runs and it runs and it runs. And it wants to be free. That's part of the reason it's running. And yet, no matter how hard he runs or how little he runs, neither ever actually on that merit will inch him any closer to true 
freedom. And when we begin to look to our own effort to save ourselves or be righteous before God on our own strength, we can run and run and run. But at the end of the day, we will finally find ourselves coming up short. If you just consider how Jesus summarized the law, how many of us in the last year have been able to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your might and your neighbor as yourself? In the last week, or even in the last day, what Paul wants us to see is that if we try then to take that as our source of righteousness, do you see how it enslaves you? It causes you to constantly reach for something that is unreachable through the means you're trying. But what he says is Christ freed us from that endless and futile striving of self-righteousness. And most incredible of all is how he did it. By taking our yoke, our condemnation, removing it from us and taking it upon himself. Placing upon him our judgment and redeeming us from slavery with the cost of his own life. Last week I referenced John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. One of the things that has struck me most about his life is that biographers say that after his conversion, he fastened across the wall of his mantelpiece in his study the words of Deuteronomy 15.15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Newton wanted to never forget that he was once a slave, but he had been set free, and it was by the grace of God. So whether you are new to Christianity or have heard the gospel, the good news, a million times, let yourself saturate in this message of freedom, that God Almighty, in his great love and mercy, creator of heaven and earth, saw fit to create you and each one of us in his image. And in doing so, he called each of us to live the perfect life, to image him perfectly as he himself is perfect. He gave us his law to know how we do that, and yet it exposed our our failure to do so. Our inability to finally image him as he's called us to do, to be holy and righteous as he is. Each of us proved to be slaves to sin by nature, rebels. And God would have been perfectly just to leave us in our sin and condemnation. And yet, he instead sent Jesus to live that perfect life required of each one of us. And when he died on the cross, he did it purposefully. He did it to bear in himself the punishment for each of those sins, the wrath of God stored up for each sin committed by anyone who would turn away from their sin and trust in him. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, and he offers now righteousness, the righteousness that we otherwise strive for in ourselves. He offers freely to be taken by faith. 
Why does he do it? Paul says to free us, to liberate and deliver us, that we would no longer live under sin's condemnation or the endlessly futile striving of self-righteousness. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 11? When he said, come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, not the yoke of slavery. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friend, if you are here today and you have not yet done this, if you have not trusted in Christ in this way, this is the freedom that he holds out to you to be received by repenting of your sin, turning from it and trusting in him by faith, even this morning. But if you are a Christian and you have trusted in Christ, is this your experience? Freedom. This sense of levity, of rest. I think many of us often view the Christian life almost like an internship. You know, uh, we know that we were not qualified to come into the internship. And we know it's an exclusive one and one that can, nobody has credentials to enter into. So we trust that we got into the internship by grace through faith. And so since we believe that, we kind of check our grace and faith box. But then once we get in and suddenly realize that we're striving and working and toiling as though we foresee that job at the end being offered based on our performance. Like now this internship is the means by which we assure whether or not we get that job. And so we work and we labor and we labor in this internship that was never earned in the first place. And what the gospel says is that job is as guaranteed by grace through faith as the internship you, get, you were given. Christ secured not only bringing you into the Christian life, but the assurance that he will complete the Christian life by faith. What does understanding that change about the way you work? If you think back to that internship, how would it change your internship? It would turn what was once a ceaseless toil to earn a job into a restful and yet zealous pursuit to honor the one who gave it and to prepare yourself, not to earn, but to prepare yourself for that job to come. And friends, that is the Christian life. We have been saved by grace through faith and now we live laboring, restfully laboring in light today of the guarantee tomorrow. When we walk into that heavenly throne room, and we behold the one we have labored for in love. John Piper said, your enjoyment of freedom is much more important to God than many of the day-to-day decisions that fill us with so much concern. We should be exercising as much diligence in prayer and study to stand fast in freedom as we do to decide about our home, our job, our school, our marriage partner. This is a clear 
and unqualified command. So friends, are you living in light of this freedom? Or do you feel weary, weighed down under the yoke of striving to gain the approval of God or of others? Or what tempts you to this kind of unrest? Is it appearing a certain way before others? Always wearing a mask that says, I'm doing just fine? Is it always striving to meet a standard of holiness that either you or others seem to be putting above you? That seem to be imposing on you, feeling crushed by a constant sense of disappointment to either yourself or to others or even to God? I shared a few weeks ago my own struggle with a, an idolatrous desire for perceived maturity and that I would be viewed in this kind of spiritual maturity. And I've often viewed God's approval for and affection for me based on how I'm upholding that perception. I wonder if there's anything like that in your own life. Anything like that that you experience. Success at work or at school. Your skill in parenting. Always being busy so as to uphold this sense of significance. Freedom, the freedom that Paul is talking about here, freedom does not rid us of a desire to pursue Christian maturity. It does not rid us of a desire to honor God who set us free. It does not change our desire to work hard or parent well or make us lazy in any way. But it does free us from the guilt and sense of obligation that your approval before God rests on any one of those things. God gave the Sabbath to his people to catechize them, to teach them their need to rest. And Jesus declared of himself, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest, the one in whom we should find our rest. And Paul says it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so we should rest in him, not submitting again to a yoke of slavery. But then that begs the question, what should we do? We stand firm in freedom, but what does that look like? Well, Paul says in point number two, we should await righteousness by faith. Await righteousness by faith. Look with me back to verse two. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await the spirit 
through the spirit, the righteousness for which we hope for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Can you feel the weight of Paul's concern? Mark my words, he says. I, Paul, write to you. I say to you. He's emphasizing the importance of what he's concerned with. And what he's concerned with is that these Galatians are forfeiting their freedom. They are forfeiting their freedom by trying to be justified through the law. For them, he says, it was their looking to circumcision for justification. That's what these Judaizers were saying would make them righteous, as if they obeyed the law through circumcision. But the principle applies to anything that we look to apart from Jesus Christ. If we look to anything for righteousness sake apart from Christ, then Paul says the consequence is a falling away from grace. Christ being of no value. Not losing grace that you once had, but a proving that you had never really received the free gift of grace that you once claimed. Imagine if I started working overtime. In order to buy my wife a bouquet of flowers that she otherwise couldn't afford. So I work and I work and I work. I finally make up enough money. I go buy this bouquet of flowers. I come home to my wife and I present them to her. She takes one look at them, leaves them in my hands, runs out the door and finds a job so she can help me pay for them. Do you see how she's forfeiting This gift that I worked for only in love for her, to earn for her. Friends, she would be forfeiting my gift and spurning my gift to her, trying to help me pay the cost. You cannot earn grace. Earned grace is by definition an oxymoron. They are incompatible. An effort to earn grace is a forfeiting of grace, Paul says. You leave these flowers behind and take up the sweat and toil of earning. Jesus did not come to help us become righteous. Jesus came to earn righteousness that he could in turn offer to us to be received by faith. A righteousness that Christians await, at least in its fullness, in its fulfillment. Look at that contrast there in verse 5. You have legalists in verses 2 through 4 who spend their days slaving to earn righteousness today. But Christians eagerly await a righteousness a fullness of righteousness that is yet to come, one that has already been declared. When Paul says you were justified by faith, you were declared righteous by faith. It has been declared, but its full reception, its fulfillment is yet to come. We look forward with hope in what is to come. 
And we do so, Paul says, eagerly. Does eagerly characterize how you await this righteousness to come? That day when sin is gone and unrighteousness is done away with, when tears and pain and even death are gone, and we go from this ongoing act of sanctification to the final fulfillment of full glorification, as Paul says in Romans 8. When the temptation to turn away from grace and strive for self-righteousness is done away with, and we enter into his courts with untainted hearts of praise and of thanksgiving, this awaiting for that which is to come, the fullness of the inheritance that Paul has been talking about the entire letter, an inheritance that is not received today, but one that is in its fullness going to come on that day when we are finally called home. This is what Christians eagerly wait for. But do note that waiting, in the Christian sense, in the biblical sense, waiting is active. Waiting is active. If you're like me, nesting was not a term you associated with people until your wife gets pregnant. Then you come to find out there's this term nesting, which is this instinctive, biological, hormonal, whatever you want to call it, response that your wife has when she comes to the realization that very soon a life is coming, a wonderful and priceless life. And it is as though her instinct kicks in and creates in her a desire to work and prepare for herself or prepare for this child a home. A work that is active, but is not tireless or burdensome. It's a work that's motivated or driven, brought about by love for that child. One that doesn't bring about the life of your child any faster, nor does it any more assure the, the coming about of your child's life. But it's an instinctive response, eager, with joy, in anticipation of his arrival. When the Spirit so convicts you and produces in you genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says it will create in you such eager anticipation for what is to come that it will compel you, produce in you works of love. True faith, then, produced by the Spirit, is never idle. Christians work while they wait. This is the faith, Paul says, that counts before God, a faith expressing itself or working through love, love for God and love for neighbor, as Jesus summarized in the law, like we mentioned earlier. A love that 1 John 5 says shows itself, how? by obeying or keeping God's commandments. A love that shows itself, as Jesus says in John 13, in the way that his disciples love one another. That's how you prove yourself to be a disciple. Much like my daughter does not obey me to earn my love. My love for her is grounded in her status as my daughter. But her obedience 
her listening to me. It does honor me as her father. And it does demonstrate her love for me as her father. And it demonstrates to the watching world who her father is. She listens to me specifically. And it's a demonstration or manifestation of who her father is. So does the faith you profess express itself in this kind of love? Is that love reflected in the time you spend with God in his word and in prayer? Is your response, is it reflected in your response to gossip or slander when you're with friends or coworkers or family? And you know it's something that God forbids, as we'll get to in next week in Galatians 5. It's something God forbids, and yet everyone around you is doing it. And does your love for God show itself in how you respond in that moment? What does this love look like at school? In your response to classmates, when you know their life, the life of everyone around you is being lived in a way that displeases your heavenly father that you claim to be the child of. Is your love for him surpassing your love for popularity? Or what does the quickness and even eagerness you have to tell others about this amazing God speak about your love for him? But friends, if you're like me and you look at your life and you think about these questions, you quickly start to realize how far you've fallen short, how poorly you are doing at this. And if that's you, friend, let me just remind you and encourage you to remember your hope is not in your ability to do these things perfectly. We are called to do them as a response, but your hope is not in them in themselves. They are evidence of the fact that you have been made or declared righteous in Christ. But they are not themselves your righteousness. Repent of your failure. Yes, turn away from your failure and ask the Lord to create in you all kinds of increased love that you would start walking in that kind of obedience. But then set your gaze on the promise that the fullness of that righteousness is yet to come. A righteousness that is promised by faith. And I trust that if you do that, it will in turn flame the fire of your love for this gracious God. And as your love for him grows, it will in turn flame your love for others. And in turn flame your love and desire to obey his word. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And this, Paul says, is not only how you begin the Christian life, it's also how you finish it, which is our final point this morning. Finish the race. Look with me again at verse 7. Paul says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. 
Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. The clear concern that Paul has here is like a parent for his dear children that they would finish the race they began. But how are they to do that? For that matter, how is Southwest Harbor, how is this church to do that? Well, let me point out two instructions Paul gives to these churches. First, he says, guard the truth. Guard the truth. Verse 8 presents these Judaizers, these false teachers, as those who have come in with a persuasion that is not from God. A persuasion, if you remember from back in chapter 4, Paul says, was them making much of you, but for no good purpose. It's a persuasion that makes much of man. Isn't that what's happened across so many churches today? Even here on this island? The leaven of tolerance, of man-centeredness, of a denial that God will judge sin, and a replacement of that with a promotion of a blanket love that God simply welcomes any who would try hard. It is a leaven that eventually rises until the gospel is abandoned. And Paul says we are called to guard against such persuasion, the type of persuasion that appeals to the itching ears of our world and to stand firm in the truth of the gospel, even in the face of persecution at the offense of the cross. Because the moment we begin to entertain it, it becomes a threat to our ability to finish the race. Which is why Paul gets so animated in this text. Why he is so aggressive in this text. He sees the inheritance, the future, the finishing of his children being threatened. And so he gets passionate even in verse 12, wishing that these Judaizers would go the whole way and emasculate themselves a type of lashing out of righteous anger like he had in chapter 1 when he called down curses for anyone who would preach a gospel contrary to the true gospel. He is raining down curses against those who would defy the truth. He's protecting his children from slavery, from forfeiting grace, forfeiting righteousness, even forfeiting eternal life. And he says, we are to do the same. And what does this guy look like today? This one who seeks persuasion that is not from God, a persuasion that makes much of man. Is it the prosperity gospel preachers like Joel Osteen or even Joyce Meyer who preach in such a way as to Make matters about us. God, a servant of us. And in this life, having your best life now. 
Or is it the Unitarian preacher who denies sin and makes life about man's self-discovery and their personal philosophy? Friends, they may preach with passion and their lives may even look exemplary on the outside, but they share one thing in common. They make much of man and man's ability to be righteous in their own strength. And they strip away the cross just like the Judaizers were trying to do with the law. We can preach legalism and self-righteousness or we can preach the free grace of Jesus Christ to be received by faith. But we cannot preach both. And on that note, I want to stop for a moment and just praise God for this church, for your endeavor for decades to ensure that this pulpit upholds the truth of the gospel. When churches all over this island so readily surrender and forfeit the truth out of fear of persecution, being called intolerant, you, like Paul, have refused to remove the offense of the cross and have persevered in the truth and preserved it, not just for yourselves, but for generations to come. And from what I've learned, for over 20 years now, at least, you have made sure that a pastor was in this pulpit preaching the gospel faithfully, testifying to its truth. And praise God for not just them, but the elders that he has raised up in this church, for past elders like Don and current elders like Aaron and Henry, Men who are striving to uphold the truth and support the preaching of the gospel. And praise God for your pastor, your elder, Pastor Blake, who has, for I think is it 15, 17 years now, been faithfully proclaiming Christ and him crucified and trusting that through it, the church would be built up. And praise God for you. You who choose such men to be those who lead you in truth. Let me encourage you not to take matters lightly, like the members meeting you'll have this afternoon. And that members meeting is the given means God has provided the church for allowing you to corporately exercise your authority to ensure the sheep are protected from the wolves. And in 60 or 70 or I don't know how many, 80 years from now, when Pastor Blake is first looking for a replacement... It will be in such a meeting as that, that you as a church, that this church will be deciding how they are going to preserve and protect the truth. Pray that this church will be faithful for such a time as that. But then Paul gives a second instruction that we need uh, for these churches on how they finish the race. He says we need to have an unyielding confidence that neither the church of God nor the people of God can be snatched from the hand of God. In verse 10, Paul says, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. How can he be confident in this? These churches are nearing apostasy. He's confident 
Because it was Jesus himself who said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And then in Matthew 16, about the church, he assures his disciples that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against his church. Friends, God will not lose any of his children. Praise God that any who has made a genuine profession of faith will not finally be lost. Do you see how such knowledge helps you finish the race? That's certainly part of my own testimony. It's honestly what carried me through about three years of very painful struggle and doubt. Tormented with questions about whether I could trust God, whether his word was reliable, whether the Christian faith was reliable. I remember having many panic attacks sitting at my desk with my hands shaking, not sure if I could continue to believe. And it was this truth I clung to as my lifeline. The Lord used my wife and a number of men in my life to help carry me through, but none of them had the same weight that the promise that God will never leave nor forsake his people had on my confidence that would help me finish strong, that he would carry me to the end. And so I clung to it as a means of grace. And I clung to the means of grace, his word and his church and in prayer, knowing that is how he would carry me through. And by his grace, he did. Praise God that he is faithful to his people. That is how we finish the race well. Together, trusting God will carry his people to the end. We don't pretend that we're capable of doing it on our own or put that mask on that hides the fact we're struggling. No, we throw ourselves and cling to the promises of God that he will carry us to the finish line. And we need each other to help us as a means of grace to get there. A few weeks ago, my family, my wife and my two daughters went on a hike and my daughter started complaining and grumbling about her inability to keep going. So the point she just sat down and I, you know, in my infinite wisdom and love and maturity, I got angry and I started shouting, you just got to keep going, just keep going. And it didn't help. <laughs> but my dear wife got down on her knees and she held my daughter's hand and she said, honey, I know this is hard, but this is what you call Perseverance. This is how you build endurance. And I can assure you that harder things are to come. And what you're doing now is building and preparing yourself to endure then. And so take my hand and I will help you and we will finish to the end. Walk with me to the end. And I can assure you, trust me, that you will have the strength to make it. And I thought, what a vision, what a picture of what the church is called to be. How the church comes alongside one another, whether you're an elderly saint who's seen God's faithfulness to his people for decades, 
or a saint who has just gone through much suffering and been carried through by God's grace. God intends to use your experience and your suffering to help comfort those with the same comfort he's comforted you with. To help each other reach the end. So church, let me encourage you to come alongside your brothers and sisters here that you might march together to the finish line by the grace of God. The bride of Christ will not miss her wedding date. But we need each other to help us get there. So Paul says it was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Set his people free. So may the Lord grant us grace to not return again to that yoke of slavery, but to instead await his righteousness that is by faith, working through love. And in so doing, would he by his spirit enable us to finish the race begun by faith and soon enter his courts with praise. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you as the only hope of our righteousness. We desire, a marking of our righteousness is our desire to honor and exalt you in the way we live, but we know even in that, our hope is finally in Christ. Would you give your people here an ability to stand firm in their freedom that awaits righteousness by faith, but a faith worked out in love? Would you help us to finish the race, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, how do...